Our Father in heaven, I thank you that your Son, Jesus, has come and dwelt among us. And then he ascended to the right hand, and even when he ascended, he had said that he would not leave us as orphans, but he would send another helper, because he was the first helper, and he's going to send another one, the Holy Spirit, to guide us into all truth. We are not alone. Who else has a God that has come to be with them and loves them so deeply that he will be with them forever. What other God is like this? And so we say thank you on the front end. Bless me now, bless the people, bless your word, and glorify your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to go back to a date, and I, I, I doubt any of you know the significance of this date, but it'll help set us up for the sermon. If any of you know it, I'll be impressed and maybe a little creeped out. But my... But, but we'll see. June 19th, 2010. June 19th, 2010. Ring a bell? Probably it shouldn't. It's my anniversary. anniversary. So, you were so close. Karen, Karen figured it out. I'm impressed, Karen. June 19th, 2010. So my wife and I have been married almost nine years now, which is incredible. And just to... I'm going to tell a quick little story, and that'll, that'll set us up for the sermon, actually. So June 19th, 2010, we got married in maybe the quickest service ever. I think it was 15 minutes long. It was no more than 20. I promise you that. So we got married, which means we entered into a covenant, right? Big C word, covenant. We've been talking about that, and we'll talk about it in the future here in a little bit. So we entered into covenant June 19th, 2010. Very quick. It was in Louisiana, so you can imagine it was probably roughly 6,000 degrees, not including humidity. And after we had our wedding, we went to our reception, which was right next door to the church building, and uh, someone forgot to turn the air conditioner on the night before, and so that means it was roughly 7,000 degrees. And for our reception, it was, it was hot as all blazes. It was unbearably hot. But we had the meal as a way to celebrate that the covenant had been formed, right? And we had a good time, nevertheless. Then we go on our honeymoon, and we come back, and I had gotten the apartment kind of sort of ready. You know, I'd done some things, and I wanted to show Angela the apartment. And our apartment was not normal at all, because I was the head RA, I was like a dorm director, for a male's dorm. So that means Angela and I got married and moved into a male dormitory which is not normal at all. Fortunately, this room was sectioned off from everything else. But yeah, Angela and I would go tonight regularly listening to 19-year-old guys yell over a ping-pong table. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're playing ping-pong out there, and that's, that's where we were. And I mean, you can imagine you walk in through the front door, a little layout real quickly. Immediately to your right is our bedroom. So it's actually the wall of our bedroom is up against the hall of the dorm. So that was noisy. And on the other side of the bedroom is the guest bedroom. It's actually a pretty nice apartment. Then you go through the hall onto your left. You see the kitchen. I'm sorry, you see the bathroom. And you walk over to the bathroom, which had two sinks, which was really a big deal. 
my, my mother-in-law was just blown away that we had two sinks. I don't know why, but she was blown away. And then, so you're looking at the kitchen, and then you turn to your right, and there's the living room. So you walk into the living room, and then you turn to your left, and there's, there's the kitchen. And out the back of the living room was a door, and it led to a little porch, which had a big field out there with pine trees, because we lived in Pineville. So pine trees everywhere. And every once in a while, well, somehow or another, I found some golf clubs. I don't know how. I've never really golfed, but if I was really bored, I'd go out there, and I'd just hit pine cones with the golf club that I found. That's what I would do. So that was our little abode, our dwelling place, if you will. And then, after we'd been in the apartment for a week or two, it was time to get our marriage license straightened out. I think we had like 30 days or something like that by the time we were married, or 14 days, and we had to get our marriage license straightened out, and we figured that out, and I think it was twenty-seven fifty is what it cost. So Angela and I joke every once in a while about how, like, we'll kiss each other, and we'll say, that cost twenty-seven fifty. Um, Why do I share that story with you? Because it sets up what we're about to talk about. We're going to see a covenant in Exodus 24. You've got to enter into a covenant, which is called a wedding throughout the rest of the Bible. <clears throat> Immediately after they enter into this covenant, there's actually a meal to celebrate the forming of a covenant. And then, after you get married, you move in together, right? You join together in a dwelling place. And that's what you get after that. In Exodus 25 through 31, you get the dwelling place. So Israel's joining into a relationship with God. It's like a marriage. And then you get this long look at a dwelling place. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Basically, we're going to be looking at the wedding, Exodus 24, the covenant. And then we'll look at the tabernacle, the dwelling place. What is the tabernacle? Because it's kind of confusing. And then we're going to get the marriage license. That's at the very end. Moses finally brings the Ten Commandments back. That's proof that the covenant has been formed, the Ten Commandments. It's like the wedding license. So those are our three steps. So we'll turn to, you should be in Exodus 24 by now. And so I'll start reading. This is the wedding covenant. And this is Mosaic covenant, which is presented as a wedding. And I'll just read and I'll stop every so often and explain what's going on. So Exodus 24, verses 1 and 2. Then he, that's Yahweh, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach Yahweh. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. So it's a little confusing if you don't know where Moses is right now. He's actually up on the mountain with God, and God is talking to him. So when he says, Moses, come up here with the other guys, that means Moses actually has to go down, tell them, hey, we need to go up there, and then go up there. So Moses is already up on the mountain, and he has to go down and talk to these people and say, hey, God wants us to come up to see him up here, but only I can worship at a close distance. Okay? Verses 3 through 8. When Moses went, so now he's gone down, when he went and told the people all the Lord's words, that's the Ten Commandments, and the laws, that's, that's chapter 21, 22, and 23, all these other laws, they responded with one voice, everything Yahweh has said we will do. In other words, I do. That's what he's saying, I do. Like, yes, we're in. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. 
He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to Yahweh. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, I do. <laughs> we will do everything Yahweh has said. We will obey. Literally, literally, we will listen. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. So you remember back then it was common for an animal to be killed for a covenant to be sealed. We saw, we've seen this already within the Bible. And so an animal was killed, and so some blood went on the altar. That's like representing God. And some blood, as gross as this is, was actually sprinkled on the people, showing that they are bound together in blood. This is serious. Life and death is on the line if the covenant is broken. It's a matter of blood. It's showing you how intense this is and how serious this is. So they're saying, yeah, we swear by blood that we will do what you tell us to do, Yahweh. You see how serious this is? It's like kind of creepy, actually. Okay, so they're in. Everything's good. And then, as was common in these days, there's a meal right after the covenant is formed. So I'll read verses 9 and 11, 9 through 11. Now Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, just like God said, right? And saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. This is amazing. So this is still what we do today. After your wedding, you go and you have a reception. You eat to celebrate the covenant. And that's exactly what this is. That's what this is. And just know that it says when they saw God, um, Hebrew word there, chazah, it's a word normally used for a visionary, a visionary experience. So this is probably a vision of God because we know no one can see God and actually live. That's hard to do. Even later on in Exodus, Moses will say, God, show me your glory. And God says, I can't. <laughs> You'll be dead. So I'll just show you kind of like the trail parts of my glory. And so just know that this word for seeing God here, it's not like see with your eyes. It's, it's a visionary thing. Okay? Now, verses 12 through 18. Time for Moses to go up the mountain. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here. I will give you tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of Yahweh literally dwelled, dwelled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of, the, of Yahweh looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 
Just a couple things to point out here. So Moses has gone up into a fiery inferno of a cloud, which has got to be one of the coolest things to ever see. He just walks up into it. He waits seven days, and then God grants him permission. Up he goes, and he's going to get the Ten Commandments, right? He's going to get the tablets. It's, his way, it's God's way of saying, this is settled. It's like a marriage license. You know, you have to bring the license to somebody so it's all verified. And that's, that's what this is. It's really very similar. God was, there was two sets of tablets, right? So the idea was that Moses would have a pair, I mean, have a set. And the other set would actually be for God. So all ten commandments were written on one tablet, and all ten commandments were written on one tablet. One was for God, one was for Moses. And that was, Moses is going to get these as a way of saying, yes, the covenant is sealed. We have agreed, you have agreed. And on his way, some of his elders are halfway up the mountain. The people are still way down at the base of the mountain, and Moses goes all the way to the top. So there's like these three sections, the bottom, the middle, and the top. And Moses walks up into God's dwelling of fire. Which is really incredible. And he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. I just wonder what it was like. I really do. 40 days with the presence of God. But even the cloud itself suggests that he doesn't have full access to God here. There's still like a cloud. It's like fuzzy, you know? So, this is the wedding, so to speak. I'll just read one verse for you. Jeremiah... 31, verse 32. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant even though I was a husband to them. Isn't that interesting? When I led them out of Egypt, I had a covenant with them, and at that covenant, I was their husband. Jeremiah 31, 32. Isn't that interesting? The Bible views this as a wedding. I think that's so fascinating. If you want another verse, you can go read um, Ezekiel 16, verse 8. That's another place. This is explicitly called a wedding. So you've got a wedding, you've got a covenant, and Moses is going to go get the proof that everything's been settled. He's going to go get the Ten Commandments. It's like the wedding license. And what is the heart of this covenant? You know the heart of a marriage covenant is to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, richer or poorer, sometimes as Angela and I joke, for poorer or even poorer, <laughs> you know, um, that's what it feels like, right? And that's the heart of a wedding covenant. What was the heart of this covenant? Well, Jesus tells us. I wonder, do you remember? Someone asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus' answer was? Uh, that's a good paraphrase. Yeah, that's pretty good. So love God, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. And that's what, that's what Michael meant when he said no gods before Yahweh. Love him most. And the second is like and done to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the heart of this covenant agreement. Love God and love people. And that's the same for us today. Even though we aren't under this covenant, we have a new way of relating to God. And our way of relating to God has the same goal. 
love God, and love people. And just on a personal note, I am so happy that when you look at the core ethic, what is the core command of being a Christian? The answer is love. Isn't that amazing? From what I understand about Buddhism, the core of Buddhism is avoid suffering. Which is good, but it's not as good as love. Sometimes love will lead you into suffering, won't it? You love somebody, you're putting your heart out there to be crushed. But it's worth it. Right? It's worth it. It's better to love than to not. Or Islam. Salam comes from submit. The key, the heart of Islam is to submit. We would say the goal of Christianity is not to submit before God, as important as that is, it is to love him. Isn't that a beautiful thing? At the very center of our faith is to be loved and to love. And the question, of course, is though, what does it mean to love? That's a big question in our day and age, because everyone has their own definition of love. And I I just remembered one example. I was reading a book, and the author shared this story. And in the story, a parent said, I just love my child so much, sometimes I don't know what to do with my child. They disobey, and I just, I love them. I don't want to discipline them all the time. So to love them is to not discipline them. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod of correction hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. So I share that not to tell you to go and discipline your children. I share that to tell you that without the Bible, we don't know what love is. We go the wrong way, don't we? We have these conceptions of what love is, and they're the wrong conception. So, I encourage you to read, what does the Bible say love is? And I won't go through all these texts with you now. I want you to do this at home, okay? So, one place where love is defined is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. Another place is Romans 12, 9 through 21. A long list of what love actually is. Not what people say it is, what it actually is. I'll just give you a couple. From 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. So, your command from God, your good command from God is to love him and love others. And you want to do that if you're a Christian. I know you do. So here's my question. Have you been patient this week? Have you been fulfilling your end of the covenant obligation by his grace? By the power of the Spirit, have you been prone to impatience this week? Or love is kind. Literally, love does patience. Love does kindness, literally. Here's a really good one. Love does not seek its own. So, question for you. Have you sought someone else's benefit this week? You sought your spouse's benefit this week. To love is to hold them up, not yourself up. So husbands, look at you especially. (laughs) I feel like I can talk to the husbands a little tougher. (laughs) Husbands, 
Have you been seeking the good of your wife this week? Because if you haven't, that's one way you've been failing to love her. You know, have I been seeking the good of my wife this week? I feel like I haven't done that great of a job because I've been so busy, she's done a lot for me. You know, this is something we've got to be thinking about. Romans chapter 12, just a couple things of what love is. Love is contributing to the needs of the saints. A lot of times we forget that love is so tangible and practical. We think of love as a feeling, but the Bible talks of love as doing. So by the grace of God and his love and the power of the Spirit, are we contributing to the needs of the church? And that I don't just mean money. That's not what I'm talking about. There's, a, there's tons of ways to contribute to the help of the church. Like, you know, this is what love looks like. This is what love looks like. Okay, so I won't give any more examples. We'll move on. We'll move on. We've seen the wedding. We've seen the covenant, okay? We've seen that the people in Yahweh are now in relationship together. And so what do you do after you enter into a relationship together like marriage? You live together. You live together. That's what you do. It's great. I used to hate it. Every single night, I'd call my wife and, you know, I'd say goodnight. Well, we weren't married yet. <laughs> you know, we're talking on the phone. I'd say goodnight. She'd say goodnight. We'd hang up. And that was it. But finally, once you seal the relationship in marriage, you can be together. And that's exactly what we see. So look, I just want you to flip through Exodus 25 through 31. We will not read all of this. Just flip through it and just take a look at what it is. See the word cubits in there? Probably see gold and silver and tenons, if I'm even pronouncing that right, and sockets, curtains. It's like, what is this? Is this HGTV or something? Like, what am I looking at in these chapters? Have you ever heard the expression, a picture's worth a thousand words? Well, they didn't really have pictures back then. So they had to write thousands of words. <laughs> so they did. Moses just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote to describe to you what the tabernacle looks like. You see, it didn't go so well when God came down on Mount Sinai. The people were scared to death and they ran away. So God said, okay, I'll condescend. I'll come down to you and I'll kind of tone it down. I'll dwell in this tent this tabernacle. And you can learn a lot about somebody based off their home, actually. So, Michael, if you could put our first picture up there. Here we've got just a gigantic mansion. If you just look around, I don't know what you would even do with all that. You know it's big whenever it says Western Lawn and Southern Lawn. Um, I don't know who owns this. I think I found this on, like, richhouses.com or something, which I didn't know existed. Whoever this is, you can know some things about them, can't you? Because our hearts show what we value. I mean, our, our spending habits show what we value. So go to the next one. This one looks a little more realistic. There you go. Just, that's kind of like a probably, that's similar, I guess, to an, the apartment that I described to you earlier that Angela and I moved into. Now, go to the next one. Here you've got the layout of the tabernacle. And notice that the opening is facing east. So rather than reading through six chapters, I thought we could show some pictures, and that way we could work through it a little faster. Isn't it great to have a projector to do this? <laughs> I know, I'm grateful for it. So notice that it's facing east. That'll be, right, that'll be very important in just a little bit. And the first thing, if you were to come to the tabernacle, right, 
First thing you come to is the bronze laver. And then, you know, you come to this, the bronze altar, sorry, then the bronze laver, and then you enter in and you're in the holy place, which is where the priest could go, and then past the holy place is the holy of holies, which is where the God dwelled over the Ark of the Covenant. So we'll just walk through it now. I'll give you a virtual tour. I feel like I'm Zillow.com or something showing you a house here. Um, so if you could go to the next picture, Michael. This is a picture of the, the bronze altar. Um, the bronze altar was what the priest would sacrifice the animals on for burnt offerings so that people could have their sins forgiven. And the priests would also have to do their sacrifices on this altar for, so that way their sins could be forgiven. Because you can't just walk into the presence of God with sin. And this was bronze, and it was very square, and it had four tips on the top of it called horns. It was basically an ancient bronze portable barbecue grill. That's really what it was. So that was the first one. And then after that, you come to the bronze laver. So notice these two are bronze. And the closer you get to God, the more precious the metals will get. Kind of like if you're walking into a king. By the time you get to the king's personal room, it's going to be gold probably. That's exactly what's going on here. It starts bronze, and now you get to the laver. And the, 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 the Bible actually says they had to wash their hands and their feet. The priest did. Because if they did not wash their hands and their feet, and they went into the presence of God, they could die. God does not accept impurity, and God does not accept sin in his presence. Then you actually enter into the holy place, and on your left would be the lampstand. That would be on the, see if I can get my directions correct, on the south side of the holy place. And now you look at the walls, look at the walls of this place. They're pretty shiny. <laughs> it's like gold everywhere. It's just amazing. And then across from the lampstand is the table of the presents, or maybe the table of showbread you've heard. And these two work together very closely. Notice this is a dwelling place. It's another word for a house. What do you have in your living room? You've got a lamp. You've got a table. You've got bread on the table. They have 12 sets of bread, 12 things of bread on there. It's like a home. This one is like God's house. It's very simple, but it's yet incredibly elegant. And the way this works is the lampstand would actually shine on the bread of the presence. And you have 12 loaves of bread, so just take a guess. What might 12 represent? The 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, the 12 tribes of Israel. So here's the picture. God's light is always shining on his people. That's the picture. When you, if you are in the presence of God, his light and favor are shining on you. Every night when I put my kids to bed, I say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace. And you hear it right there. Make his face to shine upon you. It's a way of saying peace and grace and blessing to you. And so this is picturing that God's people have his grace and blessing on their lives. And then you go and the other object in the holy place is the altar of incense. Oh, maybe I left the altar of incense out. Sorry. The altar of incense is the third one in there. And the, the priest would actually put incense on the altar, and it would burn. And so you had this incense cloud 
right before you entered into the Holy of Holies, right where God is. Does that kind of sound like Moses going up Mount Sinai? Where he had to wait outside, and then he went up into the cloud where God is. And right there at the entrance of the curtain, there would be actually an altar of incense where a cloud of smoke and incense and fragrance occurred. So that way, if you were to enter into the Holy of Holies, you wouldn't see God directly and die. Isn't that incredible? And then you've got this curtain with cherubim on it. You remember the last time we've seen cherubim in the Bible? Can anybody remember? Where was there a cherubim in the Bible? He's got an answer. Maybe. Eden, the Garden of Eden. Was that a Gandalf, like thou shalt not pass? Oh, flaming sword. I wasn't sure what that was. Yeah, that's right. So now we have this cherubim stuff, and then you enter the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt. And you had only one piece of furniture in there, the Ark of the Covenant, which would house the Ten Commandments. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant is this lid, which your translation is probably called the mercy seat. should probably better be translated the atonement lid. The atonement cover. This is where blood would be shed on this atonement cover once a year, and that would take away the sins of the people of Israel. All right. Can we go to the next one? Is there any more? That's it. So that is the layout. That's the pictures. That's what God's house looked like. And what is it? I mean, we saw the pictures, but, but why? Why? We've already told you. Look at Exodus 25, verse 8. Why did God feel like moving a portable temple? Why would God do that? It's like if you could merge a trailer and a temple together, that would be the tabernacle. You could just move it all over. Well, Exodus 25, verse 8 tells us, Then have them make a sanctuary, a dwelling place for me, and I will dwell among them. God wants to dwell with his people. That's the goal. That's the goal. You see this again in 2946, which I won't read, but in 2946, God is dwelling with his people. That's the whole goal. Why did he bring them out of Egypt? Why did he rescue them from slavery? Why did he get them across a body of water blocking the path? It was all for one purpose. God loves to be with his people. And nothing will stop him from being with his people. Not even if it's the death of his own son. Nothing will ever stop him from being with his people. It's like the old Motown song. Ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough. Nothing will stop God from being with you if you trust in him, if you are in relationship with him. So, two questions I want to ask now before we move towards the end of the sermon. First, what does this sanctuary, this tabernacle, this dwelling place go back to? And what does it go forward to? So you might think, what's that mean? Well, if you look at a house... You might say, oh, this house is like a, a Victorian period house. It goes back to this day and age, right? 
this building that we just looked at is going back to something. It's hearkening back to something. And it's going back to the garden in Eden. It's going back to Eden. Michael's already shared that the only other place we've seen a cherubim is at the edge of the Garden of Eden. You cannot cross this point or you will perish because God dwells in that garden. Same exact thing here. You're walking through the tabernacle and you bump up against a curtain with cherubim on it and it's saying you cannot enter past this point because God dwells on the other side and if you die, it's on you. Very similar. Also, Exodus 25 through 31 is broken up into seven speeches, which is kind of neat. It's kind of reminiscent of how there were seven days that God made all things. And on the sixth speech in this, Exodus 31, what, 1 through 11, the sixth speech is in particular about two people building the tabernacle, which is kind of like the sixth day where you had two people, Adam and Eve, that were working and taking care of the ground. And the seventh speech, Exodus 31, 12 through 17, about the tabernacle is about Sabbath rest. Does that remind you of the seventh day when God rested? Also, did you, who remembers which direction was the tabernacle facing? East. East. Every time in Genesis, if you remember, when people sinned, they went east. Adam and Eve got expelled from the garden in God's presence, so they went east. And then Cain sinned, and so Cain went east. And then the Tower of Babel happened, and so they went farther east. And it's like they're going farther and farther and farther away from God. But the tabernacle opens east, which means to get to God, you have to go west. And the farther west you go, the farther you're, I mean, the closer you're getting back to, to God. The tabernacle is a picture of what has gone wrong. It's the solution to it. Everything that's gone wrong, the tabernacle is the solution. We have been without God for so long in the Pentateuch, and we're finally getting back to Him. It's like Eden again. Just as though. God, and also, just like God did creation in Genesis 1 and 2, it was followed by a huge sin in Genesis 3, wasn't it? And Exodus 31 is followed by a gigantic sin, the sin of the golden calf. Maybe that gold should have been spent in preparation for the tabernacle, not on golden calves. <laughs> now, what does this look forward to? I'm trying, this is a little deep right here, but I think you can track, okay? And then we'll come up for air and get to some lighter stuff. Genesis chapter 3, there's a snake in the garden. Everything's gone terrible. Adam has sinned. Eve has turned away from God. Everything is broken. Everything has been ruined. Adam and Eve must leave God's presence. And what is the hope of the passage? Who is going to fix all of these problems? I wonder if you know the answer. We've gone over this so many times. Does anyone know? Jesus. What were you going to say, Mercy? Jesus. Jesus. In Genesis 3.15, God said, I will send a seed of the woman. He will fix all these problems. What's the biggest problem? They're They're not with God anymore. 
That's the biggest problem. They're not with him. So here's what is so amazing. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, this is what the Bible teaches. Humanity will have access to God through Jesus. And now Israel has access to God through the tabernacle. You hear that? Humanity will have access to God through Jesus. Israel has access to God through tabernacle. Therefore, the tabernacle is a picture pointing to Jesus, which is exactly what the New Testament says. John chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus came and tabernacled in our presence, is what it literally says. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, only, I only know of one translation that gets this right. It says that Jesus is our mercy seat. Just like the sacrifice was shed on the mercy seat so the people will be forgiven, Romans 3.25, Jesus is our mercy seat, is an appropriate translation. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20 says that when the curtain was ripped so we could have access to God, that's the same thing as when Jesus' body was ripped on the cross so we could have access to God. Jesus is our tabernacle. He is how we can be with God. So, that's what's going on. That's why it takes Moses 40 days up on the mountain. He's getting this virtual tour and he's memorizing all this stuff about the tabernacle. And then finally, we reach our third point, the marriage license. CDL, Covenant Dwelling Place License. I hear CDL is an acronym for moving trucks or something, so maybe that'll help you. CDL, Covenant Dwelling Place, and now the license, which is like the Ten Commandments. Shows that everything's kosher, everything's good, everything's the way it's supposed to be. Exodus 31, 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And now Moses is going to go back down the hill, and what will he find at the bottom of the mountain? Well, that's next week's sermon, and that'll be Joel's privilege to preach to you. Two concluding thoughts I have for you, church. Okay? First, did you notice that the dwelling place did not happen until after the relationship had been created? You notice that? What a great idea. Relationship first, dwelling place second. It's not for no reason that the New Testament says things like you should be married and then engage in the act of intimacy. So church, I commend you. For those who are married, keep your knowing in the marriage covenant. It belongs nowhere else. It is for you and your spouse alone. Be faithful in this. This is the expectation of the Bible, and it is good for you. It is so good for you. And non, I'm not non-Christian, non-married, beloved single brother or sister, do not engage in knowing and dwelling together until the covenant has been created. Wait until marriage, even if marriage never comes. This is so common in our culture today, singles, this hookup culture. 
This is rampant on college campuses. You just... Or Tinder? Oh my word, these people have these things on the computer where the whole goal is that you can hook up with somebody and not even have to know them. The Bible's saying the exact opposite, isn't it? You must be in relationship, committed relationship first, and then the dwelling place happens secondly. And I just want to say, this is good. This is good. Because you can't possibly have these actions without having some connection. It's so intimate, it's so personal, that what you have is a bunch of 35-year-old and youngers walking around the country with absolutely broken hearts. Because they've been with all these people, and they don't care a lick about them. To those, to those people, all that other person is, is a good time. I don't care about you a bit. I just care about the way you can make my body feel. And if you want to talk about objectification, that's it. But the Bible presents a beautiful way, a better way, a way that promotes and enjoys our humanity and our wholeness. Give your body to someone only after you've given your heart to them. Doesn't that make sense? Don't we have a better way that promotes healing and unity of body and soul? I just love that the message of the Bible makes more sense. Secondly, there is only one way to be in God's presence. And that is through the tabernacle in our story. No tabernacle, no presence of God. There is no way to be with God without the tabernacle. You agree? I don't know of another way unless you want to walk up into the fire. Pretty sure he, it won't go well for you unless your name's Moses. All right. There's no way to be with God without the tabernacle. And there's no way to enter into the tabernacle without first having your sins forgiven and your impurities washed. You must be forgiven and clean to be in the presence of God. And only then can you be in His presence. We've already seen that the first five books of the Bible present the tabernacle of a picture of Jesus to come. And so I tell you, in John chapter 1, Jesus, the Bible says Jesus is our tabernacle. So it makes perfect sense in John 14, verse 6, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Of course he's the only way to the Father. He's the tabernacle. There's no other way to God except through the tabernacle. And you can't get to God unless your sins are forgiven and you are washed clean. And hallelujah, that's what Jesus has done for us. How filthy are we in the sight of God? I'm not talking about in the sight of your neighbor. I'm talking about in the sight of God Almighty, a burning fire. He sets mountains aflame. You're going to walk up to him with all your sin and all your moral dirt? It won't work. You need to be washed. You need to be cleansed. And we, church, bride of Christ, bride who's been washed whiter than snow, hallelujah, Jesus has come to make us pure. Jesus has come. His blood has washed us. I, I love the last song that we, no, it wasn't the last song. It was uh, Come Thou Fount. The fourth verse of Come Thou Fount says, um, we'll be wearing linens that have been whitewashed through blood. He gets that from Revelation chapter 19 and other chapters. Through the blood of Jesus, 
We are washed clean. So that way we can enter through Jesus all the way and be in the presence of God. There are some who would completely disagree with every word I have just said. They would say, the path to God is like a bunch of people touching an elephant. One grabs a tail, one grabs a trunk, one grabs a leg, and one grabs an ear, but they're all blind. And so one person says, oh, I've got this snake. It's actually an elephant tail. And one person says, oh, I've got this, I don't know, flimsy sheet of something, but it's actually an ear, right? They're all touching the same thing, they just don't know it. And that's what religion is, right? We all worship the same God, we just don't know it. Well, the testimony of the Bible is that except the exact opposite, (laughs) There's only one way to God, and it is through the tabernacle, and Jesus has fulfilled that. The Bible's message is clear. There is only one way to be with him. And this makes sense. Just like the biblical sexual ethic makes more sense, the Bible's portrayal of how to get to God makes more sense. Because tell me, people will give another illustration. They'll say, we're all on a mountain and we take different paths, but eventually we all reach the top of the mountain. And I just say, I don't think that's the only way to present it. What if we take something like, let's go to Stewart's in Hartford. And some of you take a left here, and some of you take a right here, and some of you go straight here. And we keep taking different directions. We keep following different maps. Are we going to wind up at the same place? No, <laughs> we won't. We're going to wind up somewhere else. And this is what happens. Some take a right at Jesus as Son of God. Some take a left. And some go straight up into it and say, you bet he's the Son of God. And other people say, forgiveness of sins, we don't need that. I'm going to pull a U-turn. And other people go straight up into it. We're going different directions at every single possible theological turn. How could we possibly wind up at the same place? The Bible's message makes far more sense. There is one way. And just because people take different directions doesn't mean they wind up in the same place because that doesn't even make sense. There is one way, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great thing is not that there's just one way. Why isn't there more? Why isn't there more? Instead of just wanting more, how about you just be thankful that there is, there is a way. There is a way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for our tabernacle. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can dwell with you because you have dwelt with us through your Son and through your Spirit. Our Father in heaven, we look for the day where with the end of Revelation we say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Oh, bring that day soon. What love is this that you would come down and be among us? What love is this that you would send your very presence into our hearts? What love is this that we can know you and be in relationship with you? Oh, we are the beloved of the Lord. We thank you for this. And in your son's name we pray. Amen.